live in a world which images everything. It's not about who you are, but really about who you perceive yourself and you get others to perceive you to be. Right? That's what our world is about. And the keys to success in this life are a positive self-image and also that you are able to keep up this image that you want to promote of yourself to the public and to the press. I mean, think about the number of industries that have arisen in the last century that are, that are purely devoted to image. Think about public relations, right? Now anything from sports stars to politicians have any number of agents or managers that are there to put on face. They screw up and do something really, really dumb. You've got this agent that kind of comes in there and schmoozes it all over and makes it good, right? In music, we've got lip syncing, we have layering, we've got auto-tune, right? Elvis didn't have auto-tune, folks. You realize how different that is now. I mean, we've got clothes that can sculpt your body to make it look better than it actually is. And let's not forget about the wonders of Photoshop, right? I mean, who wants those wrinkles and unsightly blemishes, right, on our billboards and on our magazines? We've got to get rid of those. And those are just a few that are dedicated to, to really the external forms of images. There's, there's lots and lots of others. But then there's also creating a good self-image. I mean, popular psychology is devoted to this idea of self and creating a positive self-image, helping you to realize your full potential and to live your best life now. And let's face it, religion is much of the same way. Right? We have all of these industries that are really devoted to image. They're not focused on who you truly are, but about pushing an idea, an agenda of who you want to be to other people. Right? That's what it's about. It's about creating an image of yourself that you want others to see. And you put that out there, but all the while that's not really who you are. As we do this on Facebook, we do this in a, in a million ways. It's not surprising in a media-saturated culture like ours that this is the case. But I, I have to tell you that it's always been a problem, okay? Sure, we have, we have the paparazzi now, and we have Internet and video and, and all of these images, like billions of images that blitz us every day that can either present you one way or another, depending on how that, whoever posts that wants to communicate that. But it's always been a problem, right? I mean, just, just kind of... Amusingly, I mean, think about the grand Wild West stories centered around guys like Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody, right? That's not real life. Or or the fables surrounding uh, William Wallace. He wasn't 10 feet tall, right? You know that, right? Um, Then there are other things, you know, like, like kings and pharaohs and Caesars and emperors. They would promote themselves as deities, in order to represent the idea of absolute power. Right? No one's going to question him if he's a god, right? We're going to stay out of his business. We're going to obey him. But it's been that way ever since man first fell into sin. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis chapter 3, they sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, and then what happened? They hid themselves. Right? They hid themselves from God. And then they decided that they would go ahead and take the first fashion designer class and go ahead and fashion for themselves some clothes so that they might hide themselves from God and from one another. And then when God shows up and he questions them, why did you rebel against me? Why did you reject me? Why did you sin against me? They're like, Adam's like, well, hey, man, this is your fault and this is her fault. And she's like, no, no, it's the serpent. So there in the garden, what you see is you have image managers, fashion designers, and spin doctors ever since the creation of the world. That internal desire to try to present or image myself in a particular way by hiding my true nature has been the plight of man ever since the fall of man into sin. And it's no different in religion. We can use our supposed faith in God as a means of positive self or public image. We want to promote ourselves a certain way. We'll put on the veneer of piety. 
We'll come and we'll perform our religious duties from time to time. And we do so in order to try to impress God or to impress others or maybe just to impress myself, to feel good about who I am. But it's not who we truly are, right? If we're basing it off of an image that we want to be, that's not who we truly are. We're using our supposed faith at that point as a means of personal gain. That's what we're trying to do. Rather than freely loving and freely serving God, we use our religion as a means of serving ourselves. But that's not ever how God intended it to be. We're not to use our faith in God as a means of gain. You see, true faith in God frees us to give. True faith in God frees us to give sacrificially because we realize that we already have everything through the perfect and total sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that's what we're going to see this morning as Jesus compares the faith of those religious elite to that of a simple, poor widow. So if you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. In the Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 849. So it's Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, page 839, or 849, sorry. It says, And in his teaching Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues in the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in this time you would help us to see ourselves rightly. God, we know that we're here for one reason or another. And I pray that that desire would be earnest to offer you praise and thanksgiving for who you are. But God, if we're honest, we know our hearts too well. And we know so often we make even our religion, even the fact that we show up, we sing songs, and we listen to a sermon about us. And God, we don't want to be takers. We want to be givers. And the only way that that can happen is if we recognize who you truly are and what you have done in giving us all things in Christ. And so I pray that that truth will be communicated to us this morning as we study your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now this passage contrasts the supposed faith of the scribes with the true faith of the widow. And the first instruction that Jesus gives to us is to beware of the religious consumer. You know, so often we pursue religion as a means of gain. That every act of worship, our piety, our service, does not come from trust in and acknowledgement of who God is and of what He has done, but rather we use it as a commodity to try to buy the favor of God. Or we use it to try to earn the applause of others. Or, if you're like me, it's about trying to gain approval of yourself. You've got something to prove, and so you labor hard after that. You see, ultimately, we want to feel good religion. That's what we want. If I feel like I'm okay with God, if I feel like other people think that I'm godly, if I feel like I'm okay with who I am and about myself, then that's it. I'm okay. I'm fine. That's all I need. That's really what I'm looking for. And this has been the pursuit of man through various religions throughout the course of history. 
And it's particularly dominant in vile deception in the church in America today. Right? We live in a culture that is consumed with image. And if we live in a culture that's consumed with image as people, we are also going to be deceived into that same line of thinking. And it's going to affect the way we approach God. This passage here is actually Jesus' last public address that he gives to the crowd. This is his last public teaching to them, his, la- his final commencement. This is the last thing that he says to everybody, right, that he puts out there. And this crowd has been with Jesus for about the better part of the last two and a half chapters, okay? They showed up in chapter 10 as Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem. They're there as the blind man Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They would have seen Jesus heal him. This crowd seeing that rejoiced, expectantly coming, hoping for this coming Messiah, hoping for this Son of David, hoping for this Christ. And so as they approach Jerusalem, they sing out, Hosanna in the highest. And then the following day, they watch Jesus curse the temple. These people would have watched just very intently as the religious leaders came and they questioned Jesus over over all sorts of manners. And they they would have been astonished and surprised as Jesus just utterly dumbfounded them and silenced them with his authority. And they would have eagerly received his teaching that this coming Christ that they were waiting for was someone so much more than just a son of David. They would have received all of that. They would have eagerly heard all of that. And now they are listening intently as Jesus delivers his final message to them. This is his farewell to the public. The very last words that he says to them, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. This is Jesus' final words to them. And no doubt, as Jesus said these things, some of those whom he condemned actually heard him. Some of the religious leaders were there. Now the religious leaders have been a problem since Mark chapter 2. Right? Jesus is is teaching his way out in Galilee. The scribes come. Do you remember the story of the paralytic man, right? His four friends try to get him to Jesus. They can't. They tear the hole in the roof and lower him down, right? The scribes were there as Jesus was teaching. And as Jesus turned down to this man who was paralyzed and said to him, your sins are forgiven. Well, they immediately questioned Jesus in their hearts, accusing him of blasphemy because only God can forgive sin. They criticized Jesus for spending time with the vilest of sinners. If he's holy, then how could he hang out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the wayward? How could he do that? They publicly and officially, this is an official edict, they officially declared that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the devil himself. They interrogated Jesus over breaking the Sabbath laws and for his disciples eating without washing their hands. They tried to trick Jesus to make him look like a fool in the eyes of the crowd. They tried to get him to incriminate himself before the Romans. And when all of that didn't work, they've now resorted to seek a way to kill him. They want to see him destroyed. Now notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't condemn them for any one of those things. Think about that. These people are trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus doesn't point the finger and says, you're trying to kill me. His condemnation is based solely on the fact that they are religious consumers. They're takers. Jesus gives us a laundry list of the way that these scribes have proven themselves to be religious consumers, using their supposed faith and their positions as a means of personal gain. He speaks first of their appearance. They walk around in long robes. The religious leaders of Jesus' day wore these really elaborate and ornate robes so that everybody would see them coming. 
right? And this robes indicated, they indicated wealth and prominence and power that these men deserve respect. This is why we wear uniforms still today, right? You see a cop in uniform, you understand, I need to respect that guy and let him do what he needs to do, right? These were a lot more elaborate than, than a cop's uniform, right? This is very, very ornate. Now, we Protestants, as you can tell, uh, you know, we follow the tradition of the Reformers who rejected the use of priestly vestments, okay? John Calvin, a famous Reformer, in his commentary on this passage, said it this way, Let us also learn from this how ingenious men are in mixing up vain deception in order to conceal their vices under some pretext and cloak of virtues. By making perfect righteousness to consist in the adorning of robes, they despised the law throughout their whole life. For it was impossible to treat the law of God with greater contempt than when they imagined that they could keep it by pompous dress or by pronounced masks of contrived for enacting a play to be the keeping of the law. Their example has been followed by popish priests, among whom robes are manifestly nothing more than badges of proud tyranny. I love the way he puts it. I'm like, you can't really miss it, man. These guys are arrogant. They're pompous. This is a cloak of virtue, but it is not who they truly are. And Jesus agrees completely with Calvin, or should I say Calvin agrees completely with Jesus, right? This was a status symbol that they used to build up this image of false piety and in the process to squash the people that are below them. Second, they liked the recognition of the greetings in the marketplaces and having the best seats in the synagogue and the place of honors at feast. They loved the public recognition. They loved the fact that when they wore these robes and they walked down the street, then everybody's like, hi, how are you? Hi there, hi there. You know, they wanted the respect. They wanted the acknowledgement. They got to sit in all the best places. Like, they're right up on the 50-yard line when they go to the football games. They're just up front, right? They're, they're, they're visible for everybody. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be acknowledged. This was their red carpet. This is their throne in the great hall. This is their parade. They longed for public recognition. They wanted to be seen. Image is everything. And his third description may surprise you. Jesus said that they devour widows' houses. Now, scholars from various backgrounds have kind of disputed what on earth they're talking about here. You know, the suggestions run from just like abusing the hospitality of widows all the way up to like stealing estates from widows or trying to take houses in as a promise and payment of debt that's owed or just mismanagement of being poor stewards of what's been entrusted to them. No one really knows, but we do know this, that whatever the exact meaning, it is clear that the scribes were in some way taking financial advantage of the vulnerable and needy widows. And I think we have a perfect display of what Jesus means in our passage. As this poor widow comes up, she takes all that she has she places it in the offering box, an offering that would make it into these hands of the religious leaders of the day. Okay? I think that Jesus knew that she was coming in the same way that Jesus knew that she put all that she had to live on into the box. Okay? We've seen Jesus knows the hearts of men. All right? Jesus knows your heart. You're not to get away from him. We know that Jesus can predict the future. You remember when he goes into, he's getting ready to go into Jerusalem and he tells two of his disciples to go and to get the donkey and everything kind of goes perfectly according to plan, right? Jesus knows this stuff. And so it's not a surprise that Jesus would be saying this in anticipation for the very thing that this woman is coming to do, okay? <clears throat> and I think that's the case because in Matthew's account, this event takes place in the middle of this huge condemnation of these religious leaders, right? This whole, there's like three chapters devoted to the woe to the scribes and Pharisees, really. I mean, Matthew just lays it all out. But also, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. This is a fulfillment of what happened in the past. You see, 
ever since God gave mankind his law, gave the law to Moses, he had specific commands and instructions as to how you should treat the poor and the needy. People like widows and orphans and sojourners and servants. Specific laws that said this is the way you are to treat them. This is how you are to care for them. You cannot neglect them. You cannot abuse them. And as you read the the historical narrative of Israel, you see that they keep coming up over and over again. Right? You get to the prophets, and the prophets are preaching woe and condemnation to the rulers and to the nation as a whole because they have abused and devoured the poor and the needy. Virtually every prophet in the Old Testament deals with this, with the exception of three. Right? Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah. And the only reason he didn't deal with them is because those are addressed to other nations. Right? Everyone else criticizes Israel, the people of Israel, their leaders in particular, for neglecting and abusing the poor and needy, for not being good stewards, for not being shepherds. Now, there are many examples that I could choose from. I'm just going to look at two quickly. First, Isaiah 10, 1 and 2, because it has similar language, says, Woe to you who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. These are political leaders. These are lawmakers. Okay, that he's speaking to. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Hear the similar language there. Or one that's even more explicit and very pertinent to us, especially in light of what we saw last week with Jesus taking on this title of Son of David. And showing that the Christ is so much more than just a son of David is Ezekiel 34. Now, you really ought to read that as a whole. I'm going to only read a couple of sections from it. But starting in Ezekiel 34, verse 2, it says, Thus said the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel. Now, that is anyone who has position of leadership, whether that be political or religious or familial. It's an important distinction, fathers. Ah, shepherds of Israel. Should not shepherds shepherd the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The the, the sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and, be, and they became food for all the wild beasts. And now God goes on and he condemns them. He condemns these shepherds of Israel and then he promises that he himself would shepherd his sheep. And then picking up in verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And here, now you remember what we talked about last week. By the time Ezekiel spoke, David had been dead for 400 years. This is predicting the future. And we saw last week, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is that son of David. Jesus is that promised one. Jesus is that Christ. We know that Jesus is the good shepherd. We've seen time and time again how he has strengthened the weak and healed the sick and and bound up those who have been injured. He brought back the stray. He fulfilled all of these things over and over and over again. What we see is Ezekiel is pointing to Jesus, and it's no coincidence that right after Jesus takes on this title of Lord, of the Son of David, of the Christ for himself, that he now condemns the wicked shepherds of Israel. It's tying it all together. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he will not devour his sheep. The fifth description that Jesus gives of these scribes is that for pretense they make long prayers. A pretense means that they're faking it. means that they are pretending. 
Okay, this is not real. They are putting on an act. They pray long prayers so that others would think that they are godly. But it is a sham. Everything that we see that these guys are doing is to make much of themselves. The reality is they have failed to love God. They have failed to love their neighbor. They don't worship God because of who he is or because of what he has already done. They worship him because what they think that they can get from him, or better yet, what they think that they deserve from him. That's a key word for us. You ever feel like you deserve something from God because you have been a good person, because you pray to him? Because you go to church and you give and you do all this stuff. They wanted blessings. They wanted respect. They wanted wealth. They wanted acknowledgement. They wanted power and control. These are religious consumers. They are attempting to devour God and others for the sake of their own personal gain. What is ultimately condemning about this whole thing is that they are placing themselves in a position that rightfully belongs to Jesus. They are trying to live as if this is their world and they are God. And so Jesus throws down this terrifying warning. They will receive the greater condemnation. The scripture is clear that those who have been put in positions to lead as representatives of God will be judged with greater severity. This is why James says in James Chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. These leaders should have humbly used their positions to worship God and to serve others, but instead they have exalted themselves at the expense of the weakest. They have stepped into positions of leadership not because they desired to serve and give of themselves freely because of what God has given them, but instead they wanted to be served. They don't see themselves as being accountable to divine authority. They believe that they are the authority. I've got to admit, this is humbling. This weighs on my soul. This passage is first and foremost to be applied to those who are in spiritual leadership. To pastors, to elders, to leaders in ministry, community group leaders. This is to you. Fathers, this is to you. Anybody that is in a position of spiritual leadership over another, this is directed to them. And even indirectly. This is directed to political leaders or those who oversee others, like in the workplace or in schools. Basically, if God has providentially placed someone under your care, there's a lesson to be learned in this, a lesson to take away from it. You have an obligation not to serve yourselves, but to serve God and others with that position of leadership that you have been given. And so how are you doing that? We have to do it for their good and for God's glory, not for your own. This is tough. I talk to our interns. I talk to guys in my LTG just about how difficult ministry really is. If we're going to be faithful, that's a lot of weight to try to juggle the fact that I'm not only responsible for you, but I'm responsible for my family, and I've got to tie all those things together, and it's rough, and I don't do well at it. It's not simply a matter of having a vision and pushing to get my vision implemented here at Redeemer Church. I've got to care about you guys. And I don't know how to do that all the time. It's rough. That is rough. This is why we have a plurality of elders to share that weight, to share that responsibility. This is why we have life transformation groups to hold one another accountable so that we might not go astray or to use our positions to exalt ourselves and lord it over the flock. And so guys, I'm speaking to men in particular right here. You either do or you will have a position of leadership. If you have a family... Right? If you have a career, somebody's going to be under you. 
you take on any kind of ministry in the church at all, right? Whether you ever receive a paycheck for it and have a title for it or not, this is a call to you. Do not abuse that God-given privilege to serve other people, to exalt yourself. If you're here and you have been in a situation where you have either been or you at least feel like you have been abused by wolves in ornate robes, where someone in the church in leadership has hurt you, I just have to say I'm sorry. That should not have happened. All right? If I have or our elders have, Please come and talk to us. We want to reconcile this. Okay? But let me tell you this. Just because somebody has sinned against you, just because someone in leadership has hurt you and done you wrong, that does not give you license, that does not give you a free pass to neglect the will of God, has no bearing on who you are and what you are called to do. Okay? helps to shape you. God has providentially put that in your life so that you can grow. See it that way. But don't just say, I'm done. I'm out. That is not God's intention. And though this passage is directed primarily to spiritual leaders, it also applies to anyone who claims faith in God. Because notice, Jesus says that these religious leaders would receive the greater condemnation. Not the only condemnation, the greater condemnation. The reality is condemnation still remains for those who are using religion as their own means of personal gain. Okay? So let me ask you, how are you serving God and others? How are you doing that? Are you seeking to extend and sacrifice yourself? Are you being faithful to those whom God has placed in your care? Do you love those who are sitting next to you in these seats? Are you seeking their good? Are you extending yourselves for them? Or do you go for positions that can be seen and acknowledged? Are you only motivated to serve when somebody's going to recognize, oh man, he's a great prayer. Or he's up here on stage rather than in the back faithfully serving. Right? You'll gravitate towards those positions, those teaching positions, those exalted positions, but things like, like moving in chairs. Or just going downstairs to make sure that there's toilet paper in the bathrooms so that people don't find themselves stuck down there. Like, you know, I mean, all of these things matter. How are you doing that? How's your heart in that? What are you seeking? I mean, the reality is we're, we're all prone to seek glory for ourselves. And how are you doing at that? Are you faithfully serving? These guys, these religious leaders are hypocrites. They are takers, right? But here's the thing. We need to beware because we can be hypocrites. We can be takers as well. And the first thing that we can do to avoid this is being honest with ourselves about our sin. Hypocrisy starts when we try to hide our true nature. You cannot compensate for sin in your life by cloaking yourself behind the robe of false virtue. God sees you, right? You're not fooling anybody. And so get honest with yourself and get honest with someone else, right? Get real. There is somebody, at least somebody in this church right now that can relate to you that you can talk to about this. It can be me. It can be someone in your community group. It can be someone, hopefully, in your life transformation group. But get honest with yourself. Stop trying to cloak your sin. Let's get past the pretext of make-believe piety and be honest with ourselves and God and others. You can't pay back your sin by trying to pretend or by serving or by seeking positions of ministry. If that's your desire, you're thinking about ministry, that's a warning to you. You must first get real. But here's the deal. 
addressed mainly believers, right? Mainly spiritual leaders. But even if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, the reality is there's something for you to gain from this as well. You see, we're all born with this internal desire to make much of ourselves, okay? We all want to seek glory. We all want recognition. We all want people to make much of us, right? We as sinners worship and serve ourselves, And what we do is we create all these little subcultures, right, in order to find some outlet where we can either be an authority or that somebody would recognize and appreciate us. And so we'll break down into these little groups centered around things that we like or don't like or things that we do or don't do, whether it be like you have tattoos or you don't have tattoos or you like to skateboard or you like this type of music or whatever it might be. You like to make cupcakes. I don't really know. It doesn't really matter. We do it. We do it all the time because we have this innate desire to, to find some situation where people can make much of us and I can be exalted for something that I do. We're born with it. But at its core, folks, it is a desire to steal glory that rightfully belongs to God alone. And we seek it. And the truth is we are all guilty of being religious consumers. So even if you claim to be an unbeliever, even if you don't claim Christ for yourself, the reality is you are a religious consumer. Your religion may be sports, it may be a particular lifestyle or identity, but your goal in life is to make much of yourself and to enjoy yourself in the place of God. So Jesus warns us, beware of the religious consumer. But he doesn't just give us a negative image to fear, but he also provides us with a positive one to follow. Second, Jesus calls us to look to the trusting giver. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw in chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, what it means to love. Okay, love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Biblical love is an impartial, self-sacrificial commitment to act for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of their response, regardless of reception, regardless of reciprocity. Love is a willful act. It is a commitment. It is an activity that has no strings attached, that does not seek self-reward. Love, our ability to love, is given through a perfect, the perfect display of love, which is given to us through the sacrifice of Christ for sin. His love frees us to love God and others without any expectation of return. And so love requires faith. And love requires sacrificial action. So to put it another way, love is displayed by trusting God while giving of ourselves to God and others. All right? Or trusted giving. This is why so often it is said, show me how you spend your time, show me how you spend your money, show me how you spend your energy or your emotions or even your thought life, and I will tell you what you love. There's a direct correlation between how we spend ourselves and what we love. And so what better place to observe what people love than the offering box outside of the treasury? And that's exactly where Jesus goes in verse 41. It says, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. The reality is true faith is not measured by the elaborate robes that you wear or by who you pretend to be. It's not about the greetings that you receive for your position. It's not found because you you get the seats of honor. It's not about your position in ministry. It's not about your large, loud, 
public prayers. It's not about whether people support you by giving you their money. It's not about any of that. It is found in how you quietly and in faithfully entrust all that you are to God. All that you are. Jesus points out this widow not to highlight how much she gave. She gave about as little monetarily as you could possibly give. (laughs) The ESV says, which makes a penny. Okay? Which makes a penny. I was talking to my boys last night. And I was like, Layden and Gabe, do you have have more than a penny? And Layden said, well, I do. Meaning, Gabe might not, (laughs) but (laughs) Gabe does. The reality is they, they have more than that. And I was like, could you imagine if that's all that you had to live on? That's everything that you had. And their you know, eyes got big, didn't really say anything, you know. I was like, that's what this widow had to live on. It's like, do you know that you can't buy a stick of gum for a penny? How are you going to live off of that? You know? And they were just kind of shocked. I was like, that, and, and that's all that she had, and that's what she gave. She gave everything, didn't she? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's... And that's the reality. You can't give monetarily anything less than one penny. And the amount that she gave was not the focus. Jesus draws her out as an example because of what she kept for herself, which was nothing. She gave all that she had to live on. You see rich people coming in and they gave. They're fulfilling the law. They're giving their tithes and offerings. You know, they're faithful to do that. And because they're rich, that that amounted to a lot of money, right? But it didn't in comparison, in proportion, because at the end of the day, that was not a big loss to them. Their wealth, their livelihood was secure. It wasn't going anywhere because they gave their tithe and offering. It wasn't sacrificial at all. But Jesus doesn't say this to knock their faith, to say that they're faithless and that you shouldn't be rich. You need to give all that you have away and live in abject poverty. You've got to make that vow. That's, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that this, this woman, her giving is a display of her heart, that she gave everything of herself to God. He draws out the example of the widow because she represents his call to discipleship of what it really means to follow Jesus. Do you guys remember the weight of the call to discipleship? I mean, some of our, our most grueling sermons ever at Redeemer Church have been devoted to, say, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. And Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And for what can a man give in return for his soul? And then right after that, Jesus comes into, into contact with this rich young ruler, and he tells the man, he knows this man's heart, he knows how he loves well, he says, give it all away and follow me. Not because that's the standard, but because he knew that that guy was secure, his hope, his identity was found in his money. Or when Luke says in Luke chapter 9, or Jesus says through Luke chapter 9, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or leave the dead to bury their dead. Or no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Right? This call to discipleship is never a call to proportion or percentage. Like I can give this part of me to God, and I'll keep all this for myself. All right? I'll devote this much of my time to Jesus, and the rest is mine. And I can give this much, this percentage, and then I'm a faithful giver, but all the while, all of this is mine. I'm not giving it up. That's not his point. Jesus says to follow him, he must have all. He must have all. Jesus called his disciples to look on this poor widow because she displayed the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship is a call to 
to give all. That may seem like a lot. It might seem like too much. If it does, it's probably because you're missing something really, really important. God created everything. When I say everything, I mean everything. Okay? You, me, the chair you're sitting on. God ultimately purposed and sustained it all. It all owes to Him because He created it all. Your life is a gift from God. The very breath that you are drawing right now that you don't have to think about and take for yourself, it just happens, that is a gift from God. The fact that your heart is beating right now is a gift from God. Every nickel that you have in your pocket is a gift from God. Everything that you will ever own over the course of your entire life is a gift from God. It all belongs to Him. God created, God sustains, God gives everything. Everything belongs to God. Nothing that you have is actually yours. And at any point in time, in God's wisdom and in His justice, He can rightfully take it away. Because it's His. It belongs to Him. And so how dare we keep from God what is already His, what belongs to Him? We give of ourselves, we give our time, we give our energy, we give our money, we give our resources as an act of worship, as an act of our acknowledging the fact that it all belongs to God, and that we recognize it, we know it, we believe it, and we give it back to Him, because it's His. We know that God, if we observe our lives, we know that that God has given us all that we have for His purposes, not ours. And if we look carefully over our lives, we can recognize that God has been lavish to us. He has really spared no expense to you. It doesn't matter how difficult your life has been or what your financial state is. The reality is God has been gracious to you. He really has. He has poured out His gifts on us. Therefore, we should consider that to be His and give sacrificially to him. The widow, she understands this, and it compels her to give. And if you miss that ultimate truth, if you think that this is yours and not his, then you're never going to be compelled to give sacrificially. You will never, because you will see it, this is mine. I own it. It belongs to me. I worked for it. Not in ignoring the fact that God was the one that gave you the job and the ability to work for it in the first place. Now, this is not ultimately a sermon as far as you should give and this is how much you should give and this is why you should give, okay? But there are some examples of giving that I want to point out of here, and these are more conceptual than they are practical, okay? First of all, giving, we should give humbly. We learn from this woman that we should give humbly. Jesus condemns the religious leaders because everything that they do is for show. Everything that they do is to create a name and an image for themselves. They are trying to build up and exalt themselves in everything that they do. Now notice this woman doesn't draw attention to herself. She quietly slips in there and in faith places her money in the offering box and walks away. And no one sees, no one acknowledges, no one even recognizes what she was doing. She quietly came and placed her money there because that's where her heart and treasure was. Nor did she let her amount detour her. This is important because most of you don't make a lot of money, right? Yeah, I don't make a lot of money. But that should not be a deterrent and say, okay, I'm going to leave it to the rich folks. You know, she could have said, you know what, all these rich people giving me tons of money, they don't need my penny. I'll just keep my penny. Right? No one's going to know if I kept my penny. No one even acknowledges me. But she didn't. She gave it. Didn't she? 
Some of you are not yet self-sufficient, but you have jobs. And you think that, okay, because I'm on mom and dad's dime, I don't need to give based upon what I earn. Well, wrong again. It's not about how much you are. Because the reality is, you're not self-sufficient. I'm not self-sufficient. Your parents are not self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Do you get me? And so give. It doesn't matter how much it is. Give humbly. Give graciously. Give generously. But give. That, God put that into practice for our good. And the reality is you think that you can't give your penny? Well, I mean, you spend more than that on chewing gum. Most of you spend more of that on iTunes or air conditioning. You know, the reality is we spend far more than that on all convenience that center around ourselves. Giving is an act of humility. You don't do it to impress God or, your, or others or yourself. You give as an expression of being humble before God because you know that God has given you everything and that God sees you and God wants to know that you have a humble and contrite heart before Him. So that's why you give. Second, giving is a display of trust in what the Lord has already done. Okay? A lot of times, people will tell you to give so that you might earn future blessings. It's all future-oriented, not directed from the past, right? And so the, the idea, the goal is it, it's an investment, right? You, you just need to give in faith. You need to give faithfully now, and then God will bless you. God will pour it out. This is the lie of the prosperity gospel. Health, wealth, prosperity, relationships. If you just give now, if you just give in faith, then this will be yours. You just got to believe. You got to trust. You got to give. So pay it forward kind of a deal. You know what? Giving is not gambling. It's not. It's not taking a risk and paying what little you have and hope that you'll get a big reward. It's not high-risk investment. That is not what it is. Giving is a statement. Giving is a declaration. Giving is saying, God, I know that all things come from you. And I know that this that I hold in my hand right now comes from you. It is yours. You have provided for me. You have given me this. And I know that you have been faithful and that you will provide again. I am trusting you. I am giving this to you because I know that it's yours and that you have been faithful to provide. It's all about what God has done in the past, not about trying to buy what he will do in the future. You cannot barter with God. Third, giving is a display of our faith, hope, and love. Okay, this is just a little bit different than trusting what God has done in the past. You see, we give ourselves to the things that we love and hope in, right? We spend ourselves on what we think are going to ultimately bring us fulfillment, don't we, right? I mean, what do you spend the bulk of your time on? What are you willing to sweat over and not sweat over? I can tell you that I am not at risk of falling in love with working out and having a, a manly physique. It's not. It's not going to happen. I have, that is not an idol in my life. Maybe my wife wishes it was, but it is not one of mine, right? But we do. We spend ourselves, our time, our energy, our money on the things that we love, the things that we hope in, the things that we think will bring us satisfaction. Well, this lady, she comes up and she teaches us that she loves, trusts, and believes in God more than she does even her next day's meal. She challenges the self-seeking, self-preserving worldliness that resides in our heart. And though this passage is not a call to poverty, it is a challenge to our notions of what it means to be faithful and what it means to be loving and what it means to truly hope. Do you trust God more than your tangible wealth? Do you love God more than your stuff? More than your next meal? Do you believe in eternity? Do you hope in heaven? 
And how does that affect your calendar and your sweat and your wallet? How do they reflect that? See, giving is an expression of our faith, hope, and love. And fourth, giving displays the gospel. I've already said, giving, we give because God gave us everything, right? Giving actually reflects the very character and nature of God. God God is a giver. So when we give, we reflect who He is. And I don't want you to walk away with this, be, don't be like this, be like this kind of message, like this, just the deadly bees kind of a deal. This, there's so much more to it than that. Though that is partly God's intention, Christ clearly draws her as an example. That's all, not all that it is. The purpose of giving is to point to a whole lot more. We give because Christ gave. Do you understand that God, Christ didn't need you? get that? Didn't need you. Doesn't need you for His glory. Doesn't need you for His praise. God was completely self-sufficient, completely glorious from before the foundation of the world. God didn't have to create. God created. God gave for your joy. Right? Christ did not have to take on flesh. He didn't have to come and live a perfect life. He did that because He's loving. Christ didn't have to give up His life by dying on a cross for sin. He did that because He loves sinful rebels, God-haters, just like you and me. He rose from the grave for the joy that was set before Him. He gave all so that in Him we might have all. You see that? We already have been given everything by the One who gave everything. And because this is the case, we have now been freed to give lovingly and to give sacrificially and to give Joyfully, because Christ has done that for us. Our identity is not found in anything that this world has to offer, but in the one who has given us all things. And if we don't understand that, we'll never give. Or we'll set these tiny little limits and think that as long as I've given this, then I've done enough. And that's not the point. God gave all, so give all. We display the gospel of Jesus Christ when we give joyfully and sacrificially and lovingly. It's not about proportions and percentages. We cannot look at it that way. If you have practical questions about giving, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. I mean, I definitely encourage you to budget Right? Budget giving in and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we as the elders will we'll, we'll be happy to talk to you about that, but that's not ultimately the point of this text. Ultimately, we're working towards this truth. Give yourself to Jesus. And that means all of yourself, your money, your time, your energy, your sweat, everything. Give yourself to Jesus because He gave Himself entirely for us on the cross. He gave everything. We stand on the other side of the cross. We have been given later revelation to allow us to see the implications of this passage on our lives. And we can look to 2 Corinthians 8, 7 through 9. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And he's speaking of giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Guys, this world is not our hope. He is, and we have all things in him. So stop looking to Christ as a means of personal gain. You already have it if you're His. 
It's already yours. You do not seek to, need to seek to impress God or to impress others or to impress yourselves. You have already been justified by the blood of Christ. He has given all. You don't need to strive to make a name for yourself. And so stop using religion as a means of gain. You already have everything that you could ever want and ever hope for in Jesus Christ. And faith in Him then frees us to give. So I have to ask, what's hindering you? What do you keep holding on to? What are you not willing to let go? Give your whole self to Jesus. Because He gave Himself entirely for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what You have given us. Thank You that You have given us life, that You have given us the hope of eternal life, that if we are in Christ and we are now sons and daughters, we are fellow heirs with Christ in the grace of life. I pray that we would see that all treasures, all, all, all heavenly rewards, all, all that inheritance is ours in Jesus. And we don't need to strive for it. Forgive us for the ways that we, we use our service and we use our, our uh, acts of worship. We, we use our giving as a means to try to impress you or to impress others or to justify ourselves. Lord, forgive us of the way that we strive to make a name for ourselves, to, to present ourselves in, in a false light. God, help us to see and find our identity in Jesus who gave all so that we might have all. And in that hope, it, it will change the way we think about our money and our time and our energy and our resources. God, I pray that you would make us be joyful and loving and sacrificial givers, not because it proves something of ourselves to you, but because it reflects who you are and the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And we want, the world doesn't get that, and we want to reflect that to others. And thank you so much for all that you have given us in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.